Hey, you're listening to the Jan Hofmann podcast. I'm sitting here with Matt or Mateusz uh, Panik, depending on what language you're talking to with him. He's a old friend of mine. I really want to make sure that this is something that you can listen to from cold. Uh, so you don't know Matt yet, just so you can get a background from him and learn from the insights that he has to share today. Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, sure. Hey, Jan. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So in terms of my background, I've started my journey as a pharmacy student. My goal has always been to figure out how to how to create medicines for aging. But then I quickly realized that it's probably not the fastest way to make an impact on the world to become a scientist, right? Things happen really slowly. I've always had this, you know, drive and, and for action. <laughs> so I knew I needed to do something cool uh, in business, but I didn't really have any ideas, right? Like most people that I knew were either starting some risky startups or, you know, going into consulting. I didn't have any startup ideas. I failed all my consulting interviews. So I was pretty much stuck. And then I, you know, found one of those <laughs> online ads on how to make money online and joined the marketing mastermind. And, you know, like all of a sudden, I started learning how to how to run Facebook ads, and uh, in the process of doing that, by applying sort of my scientific background to marketing, I figured out how to get really good results for clients. And after joining forces with my uh, current business partner Mike, we took that agency from zero to over a million dollars in the course of three months, three years. And this year we got acquired by a US-based agency aggregator. So we're basically a part of a holding company right now. We did an exit and um, right now I'm, I'm still managing the, the agency business. Uh, at the same time, I'm taking my first steps in the startup world. I've co-founded a, a web-free gaming startup and uh, two years ago in COVID. And right now I'm focused on health tech opportunities as well as building a SaaS platform for learning how to code. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Got it. So your business partner, Mike, who I happen to know as well, what a coincidence. How would you say, like, what is it that makes the relationship work? Because I hear a lot about like partnerships that kind of wind up failing, uh, especially more in the early stages. But I would be really curious to hear what do you think is it that makes or made a partnership that you guys were having or are having work? Right. So I think we were fairly lucky because we knew each other for a while. So we've been friends before we started working together. We've been friends since we were like 14 years old. So we've, you know, experienced a lot together. We actually had a had a rock band back in back in secondary school. So we knew how uh, how we work. We were friends already. So we knew what to expect from each other. But I guess one of the mistakes that people make when, you know, picking partners is, you know, not testing the relationship initially, right? I think that's your level of commitment to a particular person should be scaled up as your the experiences you have to grow right like you need to you need to experience what it's like to be with someone when you're going through some tough situations in some you know early test environments before you can you know really feel safe to to go into bed with someone for a long term right so we've already had that so that made it easy but I've also had some other experiences with partnerships, right? When it comes to other businesses and some of them worked great and some of them really didn't work out. And one of the things that I've learned is 
to test the partnerships on some small projects initially. So have a role, right? Like whenever, whether it's hiring someone or um, getting into a partnership with someone, I'm not going to jump in full time and, you know, put everything on that one card. I'll start with something small, some small project, or for example, engaging myself in a startup uh, in an advisory capacity. And only after I see how the other person or the team uh, works together, and you know how they manage challenges, how they solve problems, how engaged they are, how how they communicate. Then I can make the decision to to either progress or you know like sort of keep the relationship at the level that it is, or get out of the relationship altogether. That's the the framework that I use now, and I've had some really bad experiences with partnerships as well. But I've also been lucky to to have great partners such as Mike. Got it. Yeah, yeah. I think the trial setup really works for this because you're not taking too big. Uh, of risk essentially so i think it's a very good general setup and rule of thumb to follow with this yeah. it's very interesting um, and then you mentioned your company uh, sales genomics recently got acquired so if you could walk me through the process of that a little bit right so how do you guys go about getting the business ready for sale uh, how did you guys go about finding a buyer etc uh, etc et Right. So maybe a bit of a context for those who are not in the agency business. The agency market used to be very fresh, but um, lately it's, it has matured a little bit. So companies started to, to spring out and, you know, basically do roll-ups. So which means that they're aggregating different agencies with predictable revenues at Nabida and um, basically like combining them, integrating them, and aggregating enough revenue and profit to be able to go public, right? So there, like when we were thinking about selling, those were mostly the the plays that were that were on the table, right? So there are different types of buyers you can have, right? So there are buyers that are doing that, some sort of roll-ups, and to them you're mostly just uh, just a number. You've got also strategic buyers, right? That have some sort of you know expertise or or a gap in the market that they don't know how to enter if if not for for the acquisition of your business, right? And you've got also emotional buyers, right? So the buyers that absolutely need to get the, the business like yours very quickly or they're going to go out of business, right? And, you know, the, the most important thing when it comes to, you know, getting a good deal on a business that you're selling is to find the the right type of buyer, right? That can pay the premium premium price, right? Like for the sort of aggregators, for the numerical buyers, you're just uh, you're just numbered. They're going to compare you on every factor to to somebody else. For a strategic buyer, you're going to get a premium in, on your valuation because as a sort of strategic asset, because of how you fit in within their bigger portfolio strategy. So we managed to find this kind of company, but we also found a lot of the companies of the first type. So we weren't really happy with the valuations that we were getting. What we did, uh, maybe let me take a step back and I'll tell you how we started to go about searching for buyers, right? So network proved to be the most effective. We asked our advisors and uh, you know coaches that we've worked with in the past if they know anyone. And we started to basically make a list across our network of people that could know someone who's interested in buying a business like ours. Later on, we also went to uh, companies that uh, put that basically can list your business for sale, like Flippa. And we also found brokers, right? So there are brokers that 
basically for a for a success fee can or a mixture of a success fee and a and a retainer that ca- they can help you find a buyer for your business, right? Mm, so for us, the network proved the the best, and we managed to to get a couple of you know competing bids, and we basically were negotiating and went with the with the best bid that we also thought was you know the most strategic and provided us with the best sort of you know development pathway, best potential for for the upside in the long term. We chose the team that we that we really believed that, that can pull an IPO later. Uh, because you know a portion of our payout is tied into in the IPO as well. Yeah, that's that's basically what it was. With the network, is this something that you were uh, like specifically building for that purpose, or is this something that kind of happened because you mentioned you were working with advisors a lot? So that would be interesting to know as well. No, no, no. We that was uh, sort of fairly natural. So we've always been. Across the agency journey, from the very moment we got started, we were parts of masterminds, or um, or we hired coaches that you know to advise us on different aspects of the business, or we just you know had advisors that were helping us, just um, you know free of charge. And uh, over time, like those people, just they have the network, and we asked them, and they they connected us with the right people. Sometimes they they might take a cut also from the companies that are buying you but that's that's perfectly fine this means you know they will have the incentive to convince you just make sure you understand what incentives they've got so that you know like to what extent you can trust their words and things like that when they mm-hmm. when they try to convince you to go a particular way yeah yeah it's a pretty big transaction so definitely makes sense to be a bit more cautious <laughs> makes sense yeah then i know you guys hired a lot of marketing people and I'm not. I'm not sure if you were specifically in charge of the hiring, but I assume so, right? Um, depends. <laughs> depends for what position we've got. Various departments, and like I'm not taking care of some of them, but yeah. Okay, got it. Uh, so with marketing people specifically, and if you can't answer this, we just cut it out. <laughs> but uh, with marketing people specifically, how do you go about hiring them? For example. When it comes to direct outreach, uh, media buying, cre- more creative things, I would be really curious to hear about that. Right. So uh, maybe for a, a bit of a general framework, we're using two types of channels, right? Inbound and outbound hiring channels. And we're also taking care of sort of a supportive channel, which is our employer branding, what our website looks like and things like that. When it comes to inbound channels, we post job postings in various on various platforms. Usually we're just using free ones like Indeed. And also we're utilizing Facebook groups in particular countries where we want to source from, right? Like uh, over time, we've built a little bit of a sort of understanding of what Types of positions are, for example, better to hire from particular countries. For example, I've been getting really great, you know, influencer experts and uh, you know HR people in or project managers in in the Philippines. I've been getting really amazing Google buyers, uh, Google Media buyers in in Ukraine as well as developers. Just as a, as a little bit of a tip, in terms of designers. And this is really all over the place, but I usually found that I get better designers from uh, Western countries or like, uh, you know, Eastern Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. South America, not really? Yeah, South America is perfect. Yeah, that's okay. uh, yeah. that's also great. So that's for when it comes to inbound. When it comes to outbound, 
we tend to use LinkedIn outreach, but and what's interesting, and, I, and I've learned this lately, is how different you, you need to approach inbound and outbound applications. Because when somebody is applying to your job post through an inbound funnel, you're they're like much more motivated to, let's say, for example, provide you with more information or provide you with more uh, test tasks so you can you're fer- it's it's fairly reasonable to ask a person that's applying to you for test task initially right but if you're um if you're going after people on linkedin it's key because you know they they haven't been searching for you and they, they probably already have a job maybe they weren't even looking they're just open for better opportunities so you effectively it's on you to do a little bit of a selling job before you start qualifying those people more, right? You need to like show them that it's worth to put more effort into into potentially, you know, winning a position at your company, right? So for the, the LinkedIn people, we always try to uh, just get a CV from them and an indicator of interest, and then we schedule a meeting, right? But the problem was in my previous process that those meetings were taking a lot of time off because we had to, we were basically going straight to straight to the specialist, right? So if this was, let's say, a strategy position, I would be the one interviewing them. If this was a you know, media position, there will be a lot of our senior media buyers interviewing them. And that was taking a lot of time, right? But uh, lately, thanks to the advent of AI tools, we actually simplified the process. And now we basically have our HR director, they get a script for the questions that we need answered. And they they hold those, those quick interviews and they record the meetings and I get a transcript of the meeting and I also get a recording. So I can very quickly, just by you know, judging how someone speaks about the about the topic, I can see if they're if they're you know like worth talking to, if their communication is good, if they know what they're talking about. So, so I basically like watch those recordings <laughs> much faster. And I use uh, Firefox AI to get recordings on Google uh, Meet uh, meetings. And uh, then I I listen to those meetings and and we can proceed to the second interview only with the people that I consider qualified. So this probably like saved me like multiple hours per month. Yeah, I think the transcript piece is really valuable for sure, because for me personally, I haven't done like I always had like I have an employee who's doing the interview. So I've never really had like the employee was always typing it out and it would take a lot of her time. Um, so that's uh, that's definitely helpful, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So what do you think out of all the, like, what would you say some principles behind the recruitment are, right? What generally works better? And at what point would, for example, outbound make more sense for position versus inbound? What do you usually first try for a position? Basically, how do you prioritize things in order to get like the best possible employee with the least amount of uh, effort on your end right so it's going to depend on how qualified the what's the level of skill and how difficult the skill is to obtain from the market at the moment if it's difficult then i'm likely going to go for linkedin for outbound more if it's you know like a pretty commoditized skill and then i know there's more candidates than than you know than positions than i than inbound is probably better mm-hmm. Got it. So that's that's that when it comes to the other priorities. So it's it's tricky to get the to get the rates right. Um, but for outbound, you actually don't need to worry about it that much because uh, sometimes you can just give a range and the people are going to tell you. So just make sure to react to feedback on what the position is is like. Um, test different countries. Like that's a big differentiator when it comes to you know how much people can charge. And uh, 
and yeah, like, you know, for make sure to consider not just the technical aspects, but also person's motivation to work with you and, um, you know, what they're doing outside of, outside of the work. Right. Like, so I always ask people, you know, why they're interested in working with us. And like, if someone uh, tells me, you know, that they want to learn, like I'm looking for people who are, who are here to learn, right? Like this is always better to attract people who are, uh, I mean, okay. It depends on the company strategy, to be honest, right? If you want to attract people who are experts and maybe they're looking for a little bit less of a rush and they are looking for stability and things like that, that's, that's great. I have built our company on, you know, attracting people who are quick learners, who want the fast paced environment and who are okay to be proactive and innovate a lot and learn a lot of things, right? So I'm, I'm screening for the values that we have for the company as well. That's that's important. And so, yeah, like after, you know, this initial conversation, we usually have a test task for most positions, right? For, for non-technical positions, like creative positions, we give them something to do. For a, like a more data-based position, like media buyers, we give them an account to audit to see their insights and that's basically the test task after which we will know whether it's worth to to work with this person mm -hmm. makes sense got it yeah. yeah i think test tasks in general they kind of remove a lot of the bias because you see how a person actually works right and it takes it away do you also use test tasks for more for, for something that's more senior like a leadership kind of position or is that something that doesn't really work yeah so for leadership positions i try to do that as well and so that we can test ride this. But the thing for leadership positions is you're going to be mostly looking for full-time people, right? So it's important to design a task that is going to give you like a good insight into, you know, what they need to be doing. But you're actually going to need to take much more risk with the senior positions because you, those people usually have a job, right? So they're going to need to jump ship. They're going to need to give notice in their current company. And uh, and yeah, well, like I would always have them work with you on preparing the strategy first even while they're doing the while they're still in the in their current position and uh and only you know jump ship when you're both confident that this is the right way right like maybe have them shadow what's happening on the team so that they see if this is actually for them make sure you're very precise and transparent with the scope of responsibilities that they're gonna have Make sure you know what you need from this person and, um, you know, what are the specific objectives that you're going to set up for them? Make sure they, they understand it and like, you know, really like take this slow, right? Like the, the leadership positions are crucial. Promote where you can be inside, but it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite often tricky, right? Especially if you're trying to build something new. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's new, because you don't have the responsibilities fully clear yet. Right. Because you're kind of figuring it out as you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it. Then you're hiring, like you mentioned, you're hiring a lot of people from various time zones and regions uh, of the world, right? So could you talk a little bit more about the benefits as well as the challenges of that? So yeah, like this in the time zone is really important to consider, especially when thinking about client facing positions, right? For like the, this is where it matters the most for the back office position. I didn't find this to matter too much. Got it. Yeah, because uh, the work is relatively repetitive, right? So the communication doesn't have to be super aligned in terms of time, right? It's not even about repetitiveness. It's about the like, can it be as asynchronous, right? Like, is it urgent and does it require you know communicating with another person 
that you know can impact your business metrics right for example you know our hr directors in australia were mostly in the you know eu and in us zones but it's not a big deal because we've got enough overlap to have some meetings every week and then you know things get done we we i don't need to get instant feedback on uh, on those um elements right mm -hmm. very interesting so what would you say were the the kind of biggest initial challenges uh, that you initially had to overcome with the agency and how did you overcome them oh learning sales was tough <laughs> <laughs> That was a tough one for me personally. Um, you know, getting getting used to to all the rejection from the meetings, especially if you're uh, when you're learning as you go, right? Like I didn't have a marketing education. I didn't work anywhere before I came. You know, to set up a business straight from studies. So it was um, it was gruesome to be honest, but it was also very empowering once you once you you know like bridge those bridge this gap and, and you start closing. And it's this is a skill set that you know, like it spills over into all areas of business life. It's very, very useful. So what is it that you're doing now? Right. In general. So yeah, I spend, split my time between, you know, I'm still managing the agency business until the IPO. And also I, um, as I mentioned, I'm, uh, you know, I got my hands uh, dirty in some startups as an advisor as an investor and as a, um, I'm also, I've also co-founded one of the startups that I'm running, which is a coding platform. So I'm learning how to build a technology products because that's, that's what I'm really passionate about, how to move from, you know, just marketing to, to building products that people need, especially digital products. And I'm really passionate about the, the AI innovation right now, trying to get into that market as well. It's great. What would you say would be free takeaways that you'd like to share with everyone who is listening? Huh. <laughs> I would say test your partnerships before before you jump uh, before you dive in full time. Hire from LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know like use uh, AI anywhere where you can, right? Like you better start now. Like I haven't spoken about this much, but you know I've been testing all the tools that are available across all the uh, functions in the business and I've seen like massive massive gains right like this is uh, the fact that agency is not typically a technology business doesn't mean that it that it shouldn't be especially when you know things get things get tough and you can get so many improvements over over humans uh, when it comes by, by using um, artificial intelligence automation and you know building some internal tools that you know help people be efficient and make fewer mistakes and deliver better value be faster as well yeah would you say some of the like main use cases you've seen so far uh, are copywriting for sure so basically we reduced our copywriting department to one person <laughs> since uh, since AI came over and the copies are actually better. Um, I've been writing, you know, script writing for video creatives. It's has been pretty much also managed by one person with um, using ChatGPT. And, um, you know, like gener generating content in general is, is a great use case. Um, I've seen right now I'm testing personalizing outreach communication with, with uh, AI, both in text and video format. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really big. And uh, yeah, just just in general, um, content marketing, and and I'm also 
I'm very excited about the data applications. This is too early for this, but automated data analyses and you know, like simplifying um, data analyses with basically just you know AI-based alerts, right? So AI instead of a human doing the repetitive analysis, AI telling you, hey, you should. This is an odd signal. Pay attention to this this week, right? So the analytical work becoming more reactive, which is a good thing in this context, right? Because you're you can save the repetitive time of analyzing an account, for example, and focus on, um, on just being creative and getting your ideas through the door. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think reporting is also, but it's not really AI, right? Because there's a couple like tools out there where you can just automate reports as well, but you're not really getting, like it's not really artificial intelligence, it's just pulling a report in that case. <laughs> like there's no interpretation uh, added on top of it. Interesting, yeah. So you're mainly seeing it have utility with uh, creative things, essentially, specifically writing. Um, are you using it much for creatives as well already or not really? Uh, add copies, you mean, or no, no, I mean like design. No, for for design, we haven't tested it out, but I, I'm uh, I'm taking the right tools right now. Oh, one interesting aspect is products making product images with you know with AI tools. So, for example, changing backgrounds to to create different different products. I've also seen some 3D videos made this way, really quick using AI tools. And yeah, I'm looking into other tools that are more suitable for, for video as well. Oh, by the way, editing video for especially podcasts with the tool called Descript. Like this is this is super, super cool thing that some people that are doing content, especially video or could look into. Oh yeah, I definitely used it for YouTube in the past. It's a great, uh, just makes it so much easier because you don't have to do all the annoying edits. It just saves so much time. It's crazy. Yeah. And you can fix the voice as well, right? You can make it sound a bit better. There's uh, there's a lot of room there. It's an interesting period for sure because in the past I think you had digital marketing, which was kind of the innovative thing that not a lot of people knew about, right? And now it's more. I'm not sure because I think ChatGPT, for example, it's kind of getting pretty mainstream pretty quickly. Uh, to be honest, right? So I'm not sure if it's going to be the same for companies, right? But people in their everyday life, for example, my dad, he's 60 plus years old, right? And uh, I showed him this uh, over Christmas dinner and he started using it as well himself. <laughs> so it, it's interesting because I think the adaption is going to be a lot quicker than with digital marketing, at least where there's these very obvious, very mainstream kind of use cases, right? And then with the more niche stuff, it's going to be interesting to see how the adaption curves uh, for that are going to look like, right? Because people in general, like they kind of uh, disincentivize to use automation to an extent, at least if they don't want to change the way that they're working. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see the adaption curves uh, on this for sure, right? Because there's going to be some organizations who roll this out very fast. And then there's some organizations who probably like five years later, they're still not going to have used it because it's going to change the way they're working or whatever by too much. It's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's just crazy because those companies, like the, the speed of innovation is going to increase. And, uh, you know, like a lot of people are going to stay behind, sadly. So it's going to be a tough period for, you know, those that find it more difficult to to adapt to the new technologies. Um, we're very lucky that we're young and, and malleable and we're, you know, we're just used to testing out new things, right? But for example, you know, we can uh, reduce the costs of outputting very high quality content um, and do this literally 10 times cheaper 
than a person, right? Then what does it, where does it leave copywriters, right? They just have to learn how to use those tools or they're, they're going to stay behind immediately. So there's going to be a lot of innovation, but also a lot of, a lot of stress and um, and a lot of people are going to need to adapt and, and just accept that they need to get back to, to learning, right? Mm, yeah. Figuring out how to edu- stay educated and you better do it fast is, is going to be crucial. Yeah, yeah, it's probably one of my biggest fears to at some point be too old to get new things. Because <laughs> it's uh, like everything's speeding up, right? It's Moore's Law, so technolo- technological innovation is just getting quicker and quicker over time, right? So it's like there's going to be people who learn stuff very fast and they're going to have much higher output than people who don't. It's going to be very interesting to see in the long term how this is going to play out for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the funny thing is that, you know, those trendy, very interesting sort of, I wouldn't call them mainstream, but the, the niches where the VCs put a lot of money into, right? Like e-commerce, digital marketing, all the sort of tech related businesses, they change so fast, right? Just, you know, we've been in the agency business for, for only a few years, like what, seven years, right? And like already by now, you know, Facebook ads is not a business anymore, right? Let's face it, like it's, um, there's so many, so much competition. There's so much, there's so much automation. The AI has become so, so good that, you know, it it has driven the, the prices, the perceived value of, of this particular service much down, right? Of course, like the value in, in a good strategy in digital marketing is still there, but this, this happened so fast relatively, right? In some businesses, nothing changes for like hundreds of years. And then, you know, this is only going to speed up. So right now we've got, you know, chat GPT, but like next year, it's not going to be a thing. You're, you can't like grab that opportunity anymore. And this is what's going to keep happening, right? Just like really, really rapid transitions. And you need to be learn how to build new businesses and new, really, really quick. Yeah, yeah, I think I read this somewhere that like the least cha- or one of the least changing industries worldwide is uh, like candy bars. Because <laughs> uh, people's taste just kind of stays the same always. And there's usually a couple of different players who have really high market share. <laughs> and it's like, I think there's just Mars and then there's like two or three others probably. So it's going to be interesting as well to see what happens to those kind of industries once this is going to start spilling over, right? Because like so far it's only been areas, uh, but with food as well, there's startups that have very short cycles in terms of product innovation and they base it off the feedback that they're getting from people. So normally if you buy, like if you're a Mars executive, right? And you're trying to make a new candy bar, you're just going to try a couple of different candy bars and you're going to have a committee and the committee then is going to decide on what candy bar people eventually will wind up buying, right? And then it just gets to market, takes six months, right? And then to get the full feedback, it probably takes a year plus, right? Because you need to market it as well. And there, there are startups now where they've been able to shorten the, de- the, the cycle on the innovation to be much, much quicker, where they can basically customize the taste of like the candy bar, for example, or other food uh, very fast, but based off the feedback that they're getting from uh, actual people in the real world and based off the data that they're getting. So it's going to be interesting to see as well how that impacts it, because it's a really old industry. And then there's going to be like a pretty big switch at some point, right? Like maybe not next year, maybe not in two years, but in like five, 10 years for sure, 
Yeah, like the the, the more the more liquid the industry things are going, the more liquid and digital, right? Mm, but yeah, like yeah, sure. transformation and digitization is coming everywhere, and it's uh, it's all gonna like start speeding up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Awesome, great. Then, how can people find you if they're interested in talking to you, working with you, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Sure, and you can message me on LinkedIn, Matt Panek, uh, or uh, visit our agency website, sgxmarketing.com, and uh, then reach out there. Perfect. Nice. Pleasure having you, and yeah, we speak soon. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, man.